The following podcast is an excerpt from Room for Two. This podcast features coaching sessions with real clients who are working through issues in their emotional and sexual relationships. You'll get to hear real wisdom from Dr. Finlayson Fife, who is uniquely qualified to help couples who grew up in sexually conservative environments to overcome their relational and sexual roadblocks. The couples in this series are not ongoing clients of Dr. Finlayson Fife. To ensure their anonymity, their names and identifying features have been changed, but their stories and their voices are real. Welcome to Room for Two, Couples Coaching with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Kelly and Zach, welcome to Room for Two. So just tell me a bit about yourselves and how I can be helpful. Yeah, so I'll kind of give an introduction. Um, so uh, we've been married for almost 12 years. And uh, I think, you know, the, the last year has been like a, uh, a big year of sort of development for us. Um, it's started with um, a pornography disclosure that I made to Kelly well, almost a year ago. And that kind of started us on a path of trying to figure out, you know, how I got there and sort of, the, you know, dynamics in our marriage. And I took the, um, took your men's course and have been reading a lot of books. And, you know, we've been trying to correct some of the bad patterns that existed in our marriage. I was like the typical nice guy and she was sort of a peacemaker and just wanted to keep me happy. And, and uh, so, you know, all those dynamics were playing out. And so we've been trying to correct those over the last year or so. And I think, you know, kind of where we are is now is we, I think we understand sort of conceptually what needs to be done. And especially for me, like what I need to do, uh, you know, to be sort of more solid and more kind of self-validating. But um, I think the issue that we're having or that I'm having in particular is just being more consistent in that. So you know, we'll have periods of kind of things are good. And then um, I'll sort of have a meltdown <laughs> over some, you know, lack of validation in the marriage. And so, you know, it's, and that's, you know, that wears Kelly down, obviously. And, um, and it wears me down, kind of frustrates me. And then I'll have kind of, we'll have moments of clarity, I'll kind of self confront and things will be good again. And then it'll kind of just repeat itself. And so, you know, it's, it doesn't feel like it's getting better. It's, it almost feels like, um, you know, I'm sort of the analogy I thought of is it's like, I'm not really exercising the self-validation muscles and then, you know, I'll show up in the weight room and load up the bar with maximum weight and just embarrass myself, which is kind of how it feels, you know, because, um, I'll be solid and good and she'll be happy and you know we'll be having sex and it's great and so i don't really have to flex my self-validation muscles because she's she's given me all the validation i've ever wanted until she's not and then i'm i'm in a bad spot even though intellectually i know how i should be acting like those muscles have sort of atrophied and so my my, my main thing was trying to understand you know, what I can do 
almost on a more practical sort of day-to-day basis to just be more solid, to be more kind of self-validating, to have a stronger sense of self. Um, I get that that's the goal, but I, I don't quite know how to get there and, and to, to just be consistent so that even when she is showering validation on me, I'm, you know, I'm not dependent on that. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, my main issue. So I have a lot of questions I want to ask about that, Zach, like, and have you give me some examples uh, so it's not quite so conceptual so I can see it. But Kelly, just give me your view of marriage and how I can be helpful. Well, I think we always prided on ourselves on we never fight. That was kind of our mm. shining star moment to be the couple that never fought compared to all of our friends or family. And so <laughs> I guess we didn't realize that not fighting was actually a lot of validation seeking, caretaking. Mm-hmm. I, my job is very caretaker role. And naturally, I find myself being really good at that. I always thought that was a really good thing. I get what I want. He gets sex, I get a clean house. And so I didn't necessarily feel like that was bad until this past year that when he disclosed a long history of things that I had point blank asked about while we were dating or throughout our marriage, and he had just concealed from me. And it was very jarring because it was so different than how I had built him up in my head. And so I think that crashed. And then we've slowly been rebuilding, I think, something better. And I'm very hopeful that I've seen a lot of growth in both of us and changed my views on a lot of things and had to self-confront, you know, the ways that I've been not showing up or, you know, not doing my best. And so I see us improving. I'm a little bit more okay when we aren't perfect. We get into the little cycle of repeating the same fight over and over. And I think, well, we're making strides and we're not perfect, but Zach doesn't handle that as well. I think he feels like one step back and I'm not saying even going back to porn, just being not strong enough in himself. He'll view that as the whole thing's done. He said, even just a few weeks ago, you should just divorce me and make it easier on both of us. And that's not where I'm going at all, but he will quickly, quickly go there. So, Zach, just tell me this. How do you make sense of the amount of time of not disclosing to Kelly about viewing porn? What's your view of yourself around that? Well, number one, like she said, she asked me about that when we were either engaged or getting ready to you know, be engaged. And I lied and said that, you know, I didn't feel like it was currently a problem like at that time. And so, you know, I didn't tell her that, you know, I had looked at porn basically my whole, all through my teen years and everything. And so I think I had just kind of, you know, created this image of being like, you know, a nice guy and like having it all together and not being, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that was it. So I just, I mean, I just couldn't tell her. <laughs> I mean, it would mm-hmm. it wasn't something that we could talk about or that mm-hmm. I would tell her. It was just so devastating because it was like, you know, this is such a shock. Yeah. And when you say, you know, I couldn't tell her, say a little more about that. I'm, I'm, this is a very normal thing. So I'm not saying this like it's weird, but just to understand the mind you were in. 
Is it that you thought she couldn't handle it, that she would not be in the marriage or stay engaged if she had known? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think all of the above. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about it that had I told her when we were engaged that she probably would have, you know, broken it off. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a while ago. We were both sort of evolved a little bit, just been a little more nuanced, but at that time Mm -hmm. it was like a definite red flag warning. So, I mean, so that was always in the back of my mind, how strongly she felt about it. But I also think it was just to protect me. It was like my own sort of preserving the self-image of having it all together and being, you know, a good guy that didn't do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Sounds like, yeah, because you're saying I knew how to kind of play the part. That's what I heard in how you explained that. Kind of like I knew how to present the kind of guy she wanted me to be. Yeah. Or wanted to believe I was. Yeah. Certainly in that respect. But I mean, I'm generally sort of not a transparent person, even with her. So, I mean, she knows so much more about me, you know, in the last year than in the first 10 years of our marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know if I was just obviously afraid and just, you know, this is a sign of like weakness or some kind of defect. And I just didn't want her to know about it. Yeah. I just have one more question about that. How did you justify it? Like, what's the story you told yourself about why it was okay to not tell Kelly? Initially or? Yeah, maybe initially and then where it was. Yeah. Initially, I think I was like, this is not currently a problem, you know? And it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Like, it really wasn't. And so, I think that's how I justified it. Yeah, it's something in my past. Mm -hmm. It was an issue, but it's not currently an issue. And then it wasn't for most of our marriage. And it was only in the last, I guess, several years that I sort of started to, I guess, kind of dabble in sort of a a way that I could like kind of deceive myself and like feel okay about it, you know? So it wasn't like full pornography. It was kind of, I guess, more mild forms that you could kind of encounter on a more casual basis. I wasn't doing it casually. I was doing it intentionally, but I was kind of deceiving myself, Mm -hmm. you know? And then it wasn't until I like full out searched pornography that I was like, okay, I've clearly crossed the line at this point. And that's when I told her. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That was like my last question before I get Kelly's input, but what made it change? What brought you to the point of telling her? Yeah. It was just the search. Was it more than that? Yeah. It escalated. Yeah. To like, there's no justification even anymore. Not that there was initially, but even in my own sort of self-deceiving mind, I was like, okay, there's no self-deceiving anymore. I did it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was just like so unhappy. I was Mm -hmm. just like, you know, I feel like I just have to tell her like, so she can know and we can just figure this out. Honestly, I didn't know if she was going to be like, we're done. Mm -hmm. Marriage is over. And I was like, kind of prepared for that. And I was just like, I just can't keep going like this sort of, I think the self-deception was just eating me up. And Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I told her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Kelly, tell me about that. What was it like for you when Zach talked to you about it? How do you think about all this? Um, I think he's right that 
early in our marriage had he told me I would have broken it off. That was a correct read. And I'm sad to, you know, think that I was so misinformed about it. But those were the lessons I got mm-hmm. at church that this is very, very bad. and It's an addiction. And so mm-hmm. he didn't talk to me about that. And, and this last year when he came clean about all of this, in some ways I expected it or saw it coming because I always felt like a shoe would drop. I've said this to him mm, before that I'm so open book. And I remember early in our marriage, he told me something about his family secrets. And, but I had caught it. And I remember after a couple of years of marriage, I said, wait, you know, this is an add-up and this person had this issue. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like when you discover a pregnancy on a genealogy search that was before they were married. It was something similar to that. And I remember telling him and he said, well, it wasn't my business to share. I was asked not to tell by my dad and it had nothing to do with us. But I think that maybe where I got a little worried that their family was so quiet about those kinds of things that maybe there was more because Mm -hmm. he was very quiet about growing up and didn't have a lot of stories to share about family and I had to stop talking and see if I could get him to share with me. So I think this year, in some ways, I was relieved to finally know this thing Mm -hmm. that I feel like maybe was always there. Yeah, I I think you're saying a couple things there just to emphasize, which is that you saw that Zach had withheld information from you and that it felt justified to him. So it was just kind of a signal to you like, that means Zach is maybe willing to do that. So it's not that you yes. knew he was withholding information, but it gave you information about the justification or willingness to withhold it. You're saying something that a lot of people say, which is that they kind of are carrying this feeling that there's not full transparency in the marriage. And when it comes forward, there is like often despair and relief at the same time because they were already kind of tracking a certain amount of collusion or mm-hmm. awareness of not full transparency being in the marriage. Yeah. And I think because I, we had prided ourselves on not being the fighting couple that I had avoided bringing up those feelings. And when I did, it would be a fight. And then we would just let it go and go back into the caretaking cycle because yeah. it wasn't worth sacrificing intimacy, which I thought we had intimacy. So I didn't want to sacrifice intimacy to have a fight. So I would let those things go. So I think last year, there was a lot of relief with it. I was proud of him. I was happy. And I was also devastated. I was I was hurt, I think, the most at the length of the deception. It wasn't necessarily what it was about. I feel like he also is so cautious and good and almost a little OCD. He's had tendencies of that mm. when he did graduate school. And I didn't want to layer that on because I knew how hard it was that he was coming to me about that. But I was frustrated, really frustrated at how long because we had had so many conversations. When we had our oldest, I remember we talked a lot about how hard it might be to raise a child and this world and we had talked about pornography and there were a lot I asked about it explicitly a few times and Mm -hmm. he dodged those and I think I was the most hurt and continue to be the most nervous about that moving forward not Mm -hmm. necessarily about the porn in particular but just am I being stupid 
can Mm -hmm. stay in a marriage with somebody who doesn't tell you the whole thing for so Mm -hmm. long. Yeah. I don't know if I should pursue this right now or come back to it, but maybe I'll just ask you right now. Can you just say a little more, Kelly, about this anxiety around the conflict? It, It sounds like you were invested in a picture of who you were as a couple, mattered Mm -hmm. to you a lot, this idea that you got along. And so much so that even if there was kind of something to see, the conflict would make you back off of an opportunity to know more about who you were as a couple. So what's your view of yourself around that? Well, I grew up with a really, really close younger sister, close in age, a year and a half apart. And my parents really fueled this idea that I should be her caretaker. If there was conflict, I could be the peacemaker. That was one of my spiritual gifts. It popped up in Mm -hmm. a patriarchal blessing in my teenage Mm -hmm. years. And I think I really took that in my later years. Now I realize peacemaker doesn't have to be without boundaries or conflicts, but I had this again, this idea Mm -hmm. through church that to be a peacemaker would be to be anti-conflict. So I'm quick to apologize. I always say I'm I'm quick to anger, but I'm quick to say sorry. And he's slow to anger and he never, you know, it takes another week of silent treatment before he's ready to talk Mm -hmm. about it. And I might fly off the handle this morning and an hour later I'm ready to say sorry and get us all back on the same page and I think maybe that's been a struggle for this last year because I want to feel at peace with each other and I think Mm -hmm. it just comes from my childhood. An identity you were offered that you're the one that will smooth things over. Yeah. I agree with you a mischaracterization of what an actual peacemaker is because a Mm -hmm. true peacemaker is willing to pull for what is actually true because you can't have real peace without knowing what's true. true. But yes, still an identity that mattered to you enough to step away from important information between you, probably increasing some of your anxiety and distrust, I would imagine. And yeah, maybe allowing there to be more of a sense of like politeness, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. intimacy in the marriage. Mm -hmm. So just tell me this, Kelly, how have you experienced the marriage in the last year or since Zach told you, how has the marriage been different? I mean, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster because in some ways it's the best of the best. I wrote in my journal the next day, um, sorry, but I wrote, we've never talked so much. We've never, we talked from, I think, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. when he told me all the way throughout the whole entire night. We had never talked so much. And I just loved knowing him like that. Mm. So even though what he was telling me was so awful and jarring to me, I was so happy and so connected. I think since then, I've kind of gone this roller coaster. Some days my self-esteem is tanked. And I feel like, how did this happen? I missed all the things, you know, I made him this way. I didn't press enough. I can get Mm -hmm. down that. And then other days we're vulnerable and open. And even if we're fighting, I don't mind that conflict if I can tell he's open hearted about it. But when he kind of retreats back into like an emotionally absent 
which he kind of goes there. When I'm saying I'm displeased, I'm not happy with you. You know, I can't believe I'm married to someone who would do such a ridiculous thing after all a decade of marriage. And then he'll retreat. And then I hate that feeling. So I think Mm -hmm. it's been a lot of highs and lows. I love being. And then when we cycle out of it, we kind of get out of it. We've never been more connected. And that's where I get that hope from. But our valleys are a lot deeper now. And our mountains mm-hmm. are higher, which is good, but the fall hurts more now mm-hmm. than it did uh-huh. before. Okay, so I'll come back to you, Zach, here in just a second, but one more question, Kelly. So when you say you see Zach as kind of OCD or kind of scrupulous, say mm-hmm. what you mean by that. What do you see? I just think, and maybe part of it was that he had this kind of life that he didn't want to let me in on, but in grad school, I think he you know, he would go confess to the bishop about things and he would tell me what he was worried about and they were really silly things. Can you give me an example of that back then? Like, Yeah, sneaking candy into a movie theater would be something he would maybe not confess, but tell me how horrible that was, you know, just, and he wasn't using porn, but I almost feel in those years, but I almost feel like he was very anxious and OCD about that and then later when the porn popped up he almost used it in like searched it out in an OCD type of way rather than just looking up porn he would try and find it in a less maybe just deceive himself but I see a little bit of OCD even in this last year things he'll tell me you know just make sure I know that he did see the really cute girl walked by and he wanted me to like know that he saw Mm. that and he just wanted to check in Mm. about that. So I think we've also struggled with, do I need to know that? Do you need to share that? Or part of me has wanted to know everything. You know, I want to know every single time because I didn't know for so long. In a way, I felt like in the last few months, maybe I've fueled a little bit of those false confessions where it's not really that Mm -hmm. looking for that, but it's just coming across. I don't know. I think we struggle with that a little bit too. Mm Mm-hmm. So Zach, on your side, what are your thoughts about what Kelly's saying about this kind of scrupulous or obsessive compulsive element? Is that something that you recognize in yourself? Yes. As she said, I think the like immense stress of graduate school, business school, maybe it's always been there, but it sort of brought it to the forefront. And so be just tremendously anxious about being honest and would think of all the dishonest things I'd done and, you know, hence the sneaking the, the candy into the movie theater. The irony of that is that, you know, I was secretly deceiving my wife and which is probably why I was, you know, so distraught for a long time. But I had sort of created that persona, I guess. I think the OCD sort of tendencies have subsided a lot for me. I'm happy to sneak candy into the movie theater now. That's a different idea there. I just want to make sure I'm following it. That that's more of a persona. You use that word. So is it like kind of giving an image of a highly scrupulous person to Kelly to kind of mask where you weren't? Or was it about an attempt at some kind of obsessive control? It wasn't like feigned OCD. I mean, it was real. Uh But I think I also sort of enjoyed the persona of being Uh highly scrupulous in the excessive ways, which was actually pretty disturbing for me personally. Yeah, but somebody who's fretting about candy and you got a bunch of people saying to you, Zach, that's fine. No big deal. Like, what a good guy. You know, I'm not saying it's that you're making it up, but it will pull for a view of you of, gosh, this guy just tortures himself. 
when he's totally good. Right. There's also often the case when people do something they really can't tolerate in one domain, they become obsessive in another, right? So this is in one of the Shakespearean where he's like washing his hands. I can't remember. I read this in high school, but I can't, you know, so that you're becoming obsessive in another area to kind of compensate for something you're not dealing with directly. And do you think that was a piece or no? It's hard to say. I mean, it could have been. I think I prided myself on being very honest, follow the rules. In some ways, it gave me a lot of anxiety, like OCD type symptoms. But even when those weren't present, I think I still just enjoyed being that person. Mm -hmm. Okay. So do you mind just telling me a little more about what your relationship to pornography has been and when you have tended to turn to it? Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, it started from an early age through teen years into, you know, young adulthood. I felt like I had it under control for a while before Kelly and I started dating and certainly before we got married. Before you get to your marriage, can you just tell me a little bit about your history? Like, how old were you? How did you find it? Or did someone introduce you to it? Yeah, it must have been maybe third or fourth grade at a friend's house. I think that's how it was. And then I would, you know, just find ways to find it, you know, as I grew up. And there might have been a period where, I mean, I don't think I was consuming pornography from, you know, as a third grader or fourth grader for a number of years. That was probably the first exposure. And then in high school, Mm -hmm. it became more of just a a routine thing that Mm -hmm. was very, very shameful about you know, deep secret that nobody could know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was both to manage anxiety, but it also gave me anxiety, I guess. But it was, you know, extremely shameful. Just so I kind of have a sense of the depth of, were you looking at it like every single day? I mean, it was probably a different world then in terms of access. Yeah. I don't think it was that often, but Uh I can't really remember. It wasn't every day. I don't remember that, but it was certainly, you know, routine. Mm Mm-hmm. And was it through the internet? I'm just trying to think about how old you would be. And No. No, okay. <laughs> so how did you get access? Was it like... Yeah, like a magazine from a friend, you know, mm-hmm. that I would like take home and then, mm-hmm. you know, we'll consume for a while and then throw it away and then go get it out of the trash and bring and for a while longer, you know. Even then it was something, even though my friends were like, this is the greatest thing ever and we're so happy to have this. I always felt very bad and shameful about it mm-hmm. and tried to stop and, yeah. you know, talk to the bishop one or more times. I can't remember. And then Zach, tell me a little bit about what your family environment was like. I already have a hint at it around kind of how open the system was. What I mean by that is how freely people can sort of talk about their feelings yeah. or what is true. What was that like for you? So there was no talking about feelings, Mm. like none. And so Mm -hmm. I was family of five kids. I was kind of in the middle and everybody else was kind of causing problems. And so I kind of made my way as just sort of the person who didn't cause any drama or cause any problems and just totally Mm -hmm. stayed out of trouble. And I didn't want to get in trouble. Like some friends, Mm -hmm. you know, they love to go out at night and hit mailboxes with baseball bats. And I never had a desire for that. So I just kind of stayed under the radar. No talking about feelings at all. Was basically left alone. 
was supported materially, you know, in every way, had all the things I needed, but there was no emotional support of any kind. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of defaulted to friends and was very close to friends growing Mm -hmm. up. And I would say closer to friends than my family. And did you have a sense of like, was it just that parents didn't talk about their feelings, didn't ask how you were doing, that nobody was asking? Is that the right picture? Another possibility is that, you know, there's so much contention in the parents or in the family that sounds a little bit like what you're saying. You're trying to like, you don't want to bring more feelings because the whole family might explode, you know? So how do you think about why you learned that you shouldn't bring your feelings up? It might have been a little bit of both. I mean, I just don't remember my parents being like, how do you feel? <laughs> you know, or tell me about how you're feeling about mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. It just, that didn't happen. But there was also just kind of reflecting because it was kind of a chaotic household in some ways with my other siblings. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't going to go and say, hey, I'm feeling really anxious about this thing or I'm upset about this thing. I mean, that just never happened. There was no room for that. And you're saying they were already overwhelmed. Yeah, they were overwhelmed. And so did you get rewarded for being a good guy? I mean, you talk about being under the radar, which is one idea. Did you get acknowledgement for being the one who didn't create trouble? Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Say a little more about that so I can see yeah. what that was like. So, yeah. you know, my mom would say, you know, Zach is, I mean, I'm trying to think specifically. I mean, I can't think of a specific thing, but the message I felt was conveyed is Zach is, you know, does so well in school and is just, you know, such a good kid and just has it all together kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the implicit message there is unlike the rest of these siblings who are just... yeah. A problem. Loser kids, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Creating trouble in my life, yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's interesting. It just makes me feel a kind of compassion for your younger self because it's, it's a very typical story. I'm not saying, you know, not everybody has their own unique story, but it's not an unusual story for someone who goes to porn because there's a lot of aloneness And you're actually being rewarded for not really being knowable. So, you know, I'm all for people talking about their feelings, but I'm not as concerned about feelings in a family system as I am concerned about people being able to be knowable and to be honest and to share what's going on with them and to feel like people care, right? So it's not feelings per se, but there's a freedom to really address what your experience is. And you're saying, Zach, they're just, I got rewarded for keeping that masked and performing a persona that made other people feel good. It was in part about keeping the family from falling apart and also because your parents would acknowledge it and recognize it as good. And so there's like a really strong pressure to live in a duality that becomes really familiar to you, Zach, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's right. I didn't know. I mean, like I said, I was materially, I had everything I needed and I didn't feel like my parents didn't love me. They didn't say it. I mean, that's not something we said, but I didn't feel neglected in that way. And I don't think I really realized that 
how different my upbringing was until I met Kelly and kind of saw how her family interacted. And I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, they just talk about stuff so much, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think I brought a lot of that into the marriage, unfortunately. And so it is difficult. I think that's what I'm trying to get to is to sort of just say, okay, I do want to be known, but I still hesitate with that, I think, just because it's so deeply ingrained. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of thoughts I have. It's just one is that, you know, for many people that I've worked with, porn can be a place to go. You go into a state of arousal and it feels like an escape and often in the best sense, like it's a kind of movement into this more liminal space. So you're kind of outside of your normative experience, but in a family in which it's hard to process your own feelings, it's hard to feel known and anchored in the reality. It's very easy to want to go to that space to feel a sense of freedom from difficult emotions that you don't know how to manage. And then it creates even a deeper divide because you're like, wow, I'm really a piece of crap kid. And everybody thinks I'm one thing, but really I'm another thing. And then that division feels painful. Just like you said, there was no telling Kelly. There was no way she would not want me. And I already knew how to hide. I already knew how to show people what they wanted. So it was very probably intuitive to keep doing it. But then living in that division, very hard way to live. To access the rest of this episode and more coaching sessions like this one, visit the link to the website in the show notes below. There you can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it.